Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Um, we're thrilled to have Andrew Small with us today on a, on a subject that really has become, has raised to the forefront in the recent past. I had the privilege, how long ago was that, about four months yeah, ago? A few months ago, yeah. A few months ago, had the privilege of hearing Andrew speak at the Council on Foreign Relations in what I believe was an off-the-record yes. uh, discussion. But I found it so informative on a subject uh, which is, you know, China, Xinjiang, and terrorism, which there's a lot of noise about, but sometimes very few facts are presented. Um, it has, in those four months, it certainly has become more controversial and is kind of becoming more controversial. I would say there's probably an article in the mainstream media daily yeah. uh, on the issues. Uh, but Andrew despite having been educated at Oxford, really knows a lot uh, about the subject and articulates it extremely well. And he's written kind of about issues which are, I would say, off the mainstream of what China scholars are doing. So in Pac you know, the Pakistan-China um, relationship, something which I think is extremely important but receives very little attention in the West. Um, so it's great to have you here. As I said, this is on the record. Uh, Andrew's going to speak for you know, 20, 25 minutes, and then we will uh, uh, open the floor to first questions from me and then questions from an audience that, looking around, knows quite a bit about this. Um, okay. Andrew, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for having me here um, up, from, up from DC, and, and, and thanks to your, to your excellent team as, as well. And thanks to everyone for, for coming for this discussion. Um, I'm, as you've said, I, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of valuable insights from people in the room as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, 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 to um, digging into this um, very, I think at the moment, fraught uh, subject. And I think it's, it's really hard to start. I mean, this is not going to be the main focus of, 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 of what I'm going to talk about for the rest of the presentation, but I, I do think it's impossible to, to talk about this issue without starting with the measures that the Chinese government is pursuing um, in Xinjiang in the name of counterterrorism. Um, the re-education camps, in which there's credible claims of hundreds of thousands of, of Uyghurs detained, the family separations that have come with that, uh, the high-tech surveillance um, has reinforced um, some of the um, more familiar restrictions and monitoring um, with advanced facial recognition, uh, the deployment of surveillance workers in homes and schools, um, and the extraordinarily broad set of criteria um, that are being claimed as credible grounds for suspicion from overseas contacts to signs of religiosity. Um, I think the scale and nature of what's going on um, at the moment um, and, and, and what's been playing out particularly over the, over the last year or so uh, can occlude uh, any examination of the actual terrorism issues that, that China faces. Um, and there is a strand of analysis that says um, effectively there is no real terrorism issue that China's facing. There is no ETIM um, or at least that the concerns in this regard uh, are so minor uh, that they really only warrant attention in order to kind of unpick them. Um, I don't think this is accurate anymore, and I don't think it's uh, a, a helpful way of understanding what's playing out 
um, at the moment. Um, I think some of the practices, the repressive practices that we're seeing are a huge and I, I, I would argue dangerously counterproductive response to what are nonetheless a real set of problems. Um, and what I want to look at in these remarks is the genuine shift in China's uh, threat environment over the last decade, um, how this has fed into the uh, behavior and approach of the Chinese government, um, and what the international implications um, are likely to be of, of, of some of these questions rather than um, just in, in Xinjiang itself. Um, China, of course, uh, the Chinese government rather, um, uh, blurs the line between terrorism, separatism, and uh, religious extremism, the so-called three evils, um, and makes these things very difficult to disentangle. Um, but as well as the kind of what would consider to be kind of normal political opposition and disquiet, uh, China has faced um, uh, for a long time small-scale organized militant opposition to its rule, um, elements of which have had outside support. Um, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, groups such as the East Turkestan People's Revolutionary Party were largely backed by the KGB um, and had more of a kind of pan-Turkic and uh, Marxist identity. Um, but in the late 80s and 90s, the religious revival in the region and the rise of um, uh, new transnational Islamist movements saw the militant opposition taking on a more uh, Islamist character. Um, and this coincided with heightened Chinese anxieties about separatist sentiment following the establishment of the independent Central Asian republics um, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and subsequent years um, through the 90s saw a particularly harsh cycle of unrest, violence, and repression uh, that saw many Uyghurs fleeing to neighboring countries from what was then called the strike hard maximum pressure um, campaign. Um, and through these years, um, a spate of deadly bombings and attacks across Xinjiang. Um, there was a Chinese government document in 1998 uh, that listed Uyghur independence movements as the main threat to the stability of the Chinese state. Um, while the principal concern of Chinese security uh, has been internal in this regard, there's also there been a very substantial foreign policy component, um, with China looking to shut down sources of external backing for um, any political opposition, whether peaceful or violent. And these efforts have ranged quite far afield, including uh, Turkey and the Middle East, um, states that have influenced and reached into Xinjiang. Um, but the preponderance of China's counterterrorism efforts um, has largely been conditioned by local geography. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the opening up of um, a number of these um, uh, cross-border transit routes with Xinjiang made Central Asia the main concern in the 1990s, motivating uh, part of the motivation for the foundation of the Shanghai Five security grouping that subsequently became the um, uh, SCO at a later date. Uh, the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan and the opportunity they granted to um, Uyghur militants to set up training camps there turned it into a significant focal point um, at the turn of the millennium and drove Chinese efforts to establish ties with uh, the Taliban when they were uh, uh, running then the Islamic Emirate. After the US invasion of Afghanistan displaced a lot of these fighters into the border areas of Pakistan, Fatah, um, uh, federally administered tribal areas of Pakistan, then became the kind of new center of attention for Chinese counterterrorism specialists. Um, and throughout this period, and this is just kind of a context to kind of lead into what's been playing out in, in, in the more recent years, um, I'd say there were a few unstated principles that um, guided uh, Chinese policy um, and, and unstated and, and not likely to be stated. Um, 
First of all, that China should make sure that it doesn't become a top-tier target for any of the principal groups operating um, in the region, um, whether outright terrorist organizations, um, militant groups, or their sympathizers or supporters, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, the Kashmiri groups, and so on. Uh, China also took an approach that said that they can and should uh, reach deals with some of these groups over Xinjiang um, and over the backing that might be afforded to any of the groups that do target China, ETIM and TIP. Uh, Another principle, that China shouldn't generally take direct action itself against any of these broader groups and should be careful about its positioning and relationships with anyone that does, um, meaning, of course, principally, but not only the United States. Um, also, that counterterrorism policy in China's immediate neighborhood should be almost entirely focused on the Uyghurs. Um, the message to virtually all of the other groups was, we don't have to be enemies as long as you leave us alone yourselves and you don't back our enemies. We won't support you, but we'll only do the bare minimum against you. And for the most part, this actually worked. Um, a deal was reached with the Taliban over the status of ETIM and attacks from Afghan territory. Um, if you look back at Osama bin Laden's very few statements about uh, China, uh, they were remarkably conciliatory uh, sounding. And TIP, uh, Turkestan Islamic Party, operated under extremely uh, restricted conditions in North Waziristan. Now, this has partly been because the local and global priorities for a number of these groups, um, Al-Qaeda obviously, but, but others too, um, didn't um, particularly in include China. In, in some cases, um, uh, China, uh, even if not supportive, was seen as uh, potentially uh, aligned with, with some of the interests of, of, of these groups. Um, the Uyghur cause was largely peripheral to the interests of a number of these militant organizations. This also played into things. Um, but the other element of uh, why things played out the way that they, they, they did through this stretch uh, was Pakistan. Um, across this whole period uh, through uh, the 90s and into the, the mid-2000s, um, the state that's really kind of been at the center of the web of many of the, um, the region's militant networks consistently sought to ensure that uh, China, its all-weather friend, did not become a priority target for them. Um, it used its influence to broker relationships, uh, to dissuade some of these groups from concerning themselves with, uh, with China, and it took direct action where necessary, including killing the leader of ETIM, uh, Hassan Masum, in South Waziristan um, in 2003. Groups knew that if they targeted China, um, they risked becoming a target for Pakistan too. So weakened was ETIM uh, in the early to mid-90s that at just the moment in which China was uh, trying to win designations for the group at the UN um, and from the United States, you have really quite serious questions about whether the group at that point meaningfully existed at all. Very small in number, uh, dependent essentially on larger and more capable groups such as uh, the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. Um, ETIM, insofar as it, it, the, the, there were any kind of remnants of the group um, had very little autonomous space in which to act. While they were able to generate propaganda materials from around 2008, um, their capacity to launch attacks on China um, or on Chinese targets overseas uh, was extremely limited. From the late 1990s um, to the late 2000s, there was essentially also a period domestically um, uh, around uh, pretty much a decade in which there were essentially no major terrorist attacks uh, in Xinjiang um, and actually not that many examples of minor uh, attacks even either. Now this starts to change um, to a, a more limited extent in the run-up to the Beijing Olympics in 2008 uh, where you saw a few small-scale, largely unsuccessful, in some cases kind of actively thwarted attacks 
Um, but in the years that follow the Olympics, you see two watershed moments. The first, of course, is the July 2009 uh, riots in Urumqi, um, the worst inter-ethnic clashes that Xinjiang had seen uh, in a long time, uh, which significantly, I think, changed the climate in Xinjiang and um, was the kind of progenitor backdrop for a number of incidents in the years that, that followed. Truck attacks, stabbings, uh, low-tech, unsophisticated attacks for the most part, um, but attacks that were taking place with, with growing regularity. The second, I think, watershed moment was really the Kunming attack in uh, 2014. Uh, 31 people killed in the railway station by uh, knife-wielding attackers. Um, and the significance of this attack was, was twofold. First of all, um, it made clear that the kinds of attacks that one had already seen escalating in Xinjiang itself could take place in other parts of China too. Um, and I think this really did create a sense of loss of control, um, that uh, there was concern um, that the Chinese state could no longer fully effectively guarantee the safety of its um, civilians writ large, not just in Xinjiang. Um, and frankly, the work of the security services around the Kunming attack, um, I think the internal assessments uh, were uh, very unhappy. I think there was a strong sense that this could and should have been prevented. Um, and the, the Kunming attack was also then coupled with an, a couple of other major and notable attacks that took place. Uh, the attack in Tiananmen Square late the previous year um, and the bombings that took place in Urumqi literally on the day of Xi Jinping's um, visit to the province. Um, how would we define all of this happens, of course, during the first 18 months of Xi Jinping's um, tenure as well. Um, uh, uh, so I, I, at a kind of sensitive um, juncture for um, uh, him establishing his, his position. The other element of the, the Kunming attack, though, that was notable was that there were strong suspicions among the Chinese security services that there was some kind of an international dimension to it. Um, even if it was difficult to ascertain what it was, whether it was practical support or whether it was just kind of inspiration, um, it bore a strong resemblance to some of the tactics that one had seen from Chechen attackers, for instance, um, in the past. Um, so this was the, this was the domestic context. Um, this w all were there? Were there international dimensions to it, or is it just a suspicion? One would think forensically you could figure that out through intercepts and various other uh, not difficult to use technologies which the Chinese have. So I, I think essentially when you look through not just the, the Kunming attack, but almost all the attacks that, that run up to, to this, um, I, have, I, I didn't see or hear um, any credible external um, linkages um, demonstrated, um, either in terms of whether in terms of material support communications, um, that there was a question again more of ideological inspiration, lessons learned from other cases, something like that. Um, but I, in, in none of these cases, um, have I seen or heard credible claims of 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 of, of a linkage that goes uh, beyond that. Um, so I, I think this is. So, I mean, kind of the, the backdrop that you have then at this point is a sense of escalating attacks in and beyond Xinjiang, um, on which I think there was a relatively poor handle um, at that juncture, uh, which may, uh, uh, hard to judge, have had some degree of um, uh, outside influence. Um, and I mean, I would say, although it has been claimed in a number of instances in the past that there have been kind of out, there has been outside involvement um, uh, for, in, in some cases, um, 
propagandistic purposes. Um, in practice, I, I think it was rarely believed to be uh, the case. And there were points at which the Chinese government in, in Beijing would then kind of counteract the statements that would come out from some of the Xinjiang authorities that were made to this um, effect. Um, and if you go through and look at all the claims that the Turkestan Islamic Party made of attacks on the Chinese mainland, uh, they were extremely dubious in terms of the actual linkage and the credibility of, of, of the group's um, uh, uh, capacity to claim any responsibility for these attacks. Um, so this is the domestic context. The international context for China um, has uh, also, across this period, uh, changed in ways that complicated um, its, its situation. Um, as I was kind of arguing before, China's approach to terrorism has been partly conditioned by its geography and by its partners. Um, and in the last few years in particular, um, notably as a result of the conflict in Syria, um, I think we've seen a lot, probably some of the greatest changes um, in this uh, context since probably the late 1990s. Um, so first of all, in South Asia, uh, in South Asia, Pakistan's capacity to control militancy in its neighborhood has been significantly eroded um, with the rise of the TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, um, and its capacity to deal, uh, its willingness rather to deal with some of these threats has been the subject of periodic suspicion um, uh, on the Chinese side. Um, and some of these questions continue to be there even more recently about um, uh, militants, Uyghur militants showing up in Haqqani network training camps. Um, but it's also true that Pakistan itself is no longer the home of the Turkestan Islamic Party. Um, the Pakistani army's zab azab operation, um, which was a kind of clearance operation in North Waziristan, essentially displaced the TIP from Fatah, meaning that after 15 years in which Pakistan um, was the home of the TIP leadership, um, that group is now centered in Afghanistan again. Um, but the principal theater for TIP um, has also shifted. Um, the largest number of uh, TIP fighters are in Syria, um, uh, largely operating with the various incarnations of, of what was still probably most widely known as Nusra Front. Um, and it's not just the numbers that are important here, and we can go into the, the, the numbers of fighters that there are in Syria. Uh, TIP in Syria has emerged as a much more capable and serious group that, than when it was operating in, in Pakistan. Um, it's been involved in a number of the major campaigns um, in Syria. Um, it's better trained, has more sophisticated tactics, uh, more credibility as well among the wider jihadi movement. Um, they've almost functioned like special forces for the Nusra Front at, at points. Um, and when you saw one of the attacks, uh, the the attack on the Chinese embassy in Bishkek, that was actually organized out of Syria, um, for instance, the 2016 attack. Um, but aside from the TIP, the rise of uh, uh, IS, Islamic State, um, has also introduced uh, an actor to the kind of network of global militancy that has had fewer qualms than Al-Qaeda did in its sort of heyday um, about making China an explicit target, including Uyghur and Mandarin language propaganda material and, and so on. Um, although there have been more uh, Uyghurs fighting with uh, Nusra Front um, than with IS, the group's reach, the I IS's reach, does pose a different set of problems for Chinese security, um, exemplified, I think, by the fact that you've also seen a very small number of uh, Hui uh, recruits um, as well in Syria. Um, and I've seen some concern that as a result of this, the problems um, are going to go beyond uh, the Xinjiang um, question. And we see some evidence of that already in some of the pressures that you've seen um, on the Hui, even if it's not of the same nature as what's happening um, uh, in Xinjiang. 
More immediately, there are significant worries about returnees to the region um, from Syria, especially with the denouement of what's playing out in Syria with the Idlib campaign, which is where um, a lot of the fighters have been based, um, as well as the rise of IS in Afghanistan itself. Um, and the Syria conflict has also reconditioned the, the pathway to um, recruitment um, with a lot of the improvement that you've seen on uh, the borders with South and Central Asia, the main transit routes for uh, what have been really a significant number of Uyghurs fleeing Xinjiang since 2009 have been through Southeast Asia and ultimately on to um, Turkey. Um, and this has happened with pretty active Turkish government support, facilitation of passports um, at one end or turning a blind eye to, 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 to certain um, slightly questionable documentation, um, on supplies to TIP and Syria, um, funneling people through to some of the kind of former Alawite um, areas, uh, villages in Syria, um, and even some suspicion about their involvement in the invo uh, in the Erwan shrine bombing in in Thailand. Um, these new transit routes that have been playing out have also had implications in, in China itself. Um, the Kunming attackers, for instance, were using one of the well or newly, um, at the time, um, established trafficking routes en route to Southeast Asia, and they kind of came back from having been turned away from the border with, with, with Vietnam um, to, to, to Shadian, where they were before the Kunming attacks actually took place. Uh, how have these developments been playing into China's... Now, who were, were... What were these... The Kunming attackers, mm. were they terrorists? Were they people who were turned into terrorists when they were going to Vietnam? What were, what were they? Were they just looking to resettle outside of Xinjiang? Uh, the indications are that they were looking to leave China. Um, uh, uh, they they were turned back at the, the they, they they were not able to affect the route that they had been planning to use across the border. Uh, they went back to um, Shadian in in in, in Yunnan, um, uh, which has been one of the kind of a, lo a locus point of concern um, uh, uh, for, uh, for 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 China in terms of some of the activities that are there. It's not absolutely um, clear whether um, the where and when the attacks were actually planned. They, they were then in Shadian before they, 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 they went to Kunming. Um, it's entirely possible that if, they had, if they'd been able to leave the country, um, uh, the attacks wouldn't have, have, have taken, uh, at, the, at the time of their original transit, um, the attacks wouldn't have, have taken place. The, the material that's come out um, from, the, from the interviews and, and, and um, things that have been, the interrogations that have been conducted, a lot of them were killed, of course, in the attack. Um, a number of them were killed in, in the attack itself. Um, uh, it, it has been still relatively inconclusive. One, one, of, the, one of the problems on, on all of this in, is, uh, of course, the, the, the material that's often being shared, um, uh, the willingness to share material that, uh, that is credible and authoritative on, um, uh, from some of the Chinese security services at times makes it difficult to, um, to fully uh, determine the answers to some of these questions. You said you used the word significant earlier in terms of number of, of Uyghurs who are going. What does that mean in the context of a 1.4 billion or an 11 million Uyghur population and 1.4 billion population? Is significant. Are we talking about 100,000, 10,000, 50,000? Um, we're certainly talking in the thousands. Um, uh, the, I, I think even larger than that, possibly tens of thousands. Um, I mean, this this escalated at point. I mean, you, you can see this at junctures where you've had the uh, the, the big extradition cases that you that have played out in um, uh, Thailand, of course, which was 
part of what preceded the Erewhon Shrine um, bombing, uh, the Malaysia cases. I mean, these have been hundreds of people that have been um, uh, pulled up in these instances, um, but larger numbers have actually been able to um, uh, flow through, um, and in, in, in some cases, uh, settle in Southeast Asia. In other cases, um, their transit was then facilitated uh, to, uh, to Turkey. Um, uh, but the, the numbers have, have, have dropped, partly because of the efforts that have um, been undertaken to kind of close the routes down. Um, essentially, um, in in the first in the first phase, in that kind of in the early years after two thousand and nine, um, it, it seems that the numbers were um, were much higher. Um, so, I mean, I'll just kind of wrap up by looking um, at um, how these developments have have changed China's international response, and then winding back to the beginning, how what is playing out in Xinjiang right now uh, affects China's capacity to respond to the new context that it's, it's facing. Um, so the main Chinese effort on counterterrorism questions externally is still political, diplomatic, intelligence-based. Uh, um, China is having to work more seriously with a much wider array of countries and sub-national groups than it was in the past, whether that's Southeast Asian intelligence chiefs on uh, Uyghur extraditions, attempting to broker reconciliation talks in Afghanistan, um, or in other regions of the world dealing with uh, Iraqi tribal leaders on hostage negotiations with ISIS. There's a kind of long list of, 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 of these sort of different interlocutors of, of a sort they weren't having to deal with um, in the same way before. Um, and in this respect, China's in a, a weaker position in some respects. Um, it needs more help um, in dealing with some of these issues than when they had one largely trusted partner, which was Pakistan, that could handle a lot of these things for them. Um, in Afghanistan, um, I would note that this even now means there's a, a more active willingness to look seriously at the potential benefits of a long-term US military presence um, in the country, as long as it's for counterterrorism purposes. This was not the, uh, the, the view in the past. Um, and I see China somewhat more, the Chinese Did government- you say Pakistan or Afghanistan? Um, uh, Afghanistan. Right. Um, China's somewhat more on the back foot on counterterrorism issues in 1267 Committee at the UN, um, in the Financial Action Task Force, a number of other kind of regional summits and things um, as a result of some of this. Um, economically, there is clearly a sort of counterterrorism de-radicalization dimension to uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. You certainly see it in, in cases such as CPEC. Um, there are clearly questions about the efficacy of the approach in this in this regard, but the motivation is certainly there. Um, and then on the military and security side, uh, the new-ish um, now anti-terrorism law that was passed opened the door for Chinese security forces to uh, operate overseas on counterterrorism missions. Um, and since then, we've already seen uh, armed Chinese patrols in Badakhshan province in uh, Afghanistan, um, which were tied to counterterrorism um, goals. Um, this is also the location where China has been financing um, the construction of an Afghan military base. Um, and we saw what to me was kind of an uh, astonishing debate playing out um, about whether China should be militarily involved in Syria for counterterrorism purposes. Um, I would be very unsurprised uh, if the political and logistical circumstances permit it, um, if we didn't see a serious overseas uh, Chinese counterterrorism uh, mission at some point in, in, the, in the near future. Um, 
So I would say China is facing a real and more complex threat than they, than they used to certainly 10 years ago. Um, however, and I'll just kind of conclude with this, I think there's a strong argument that the way that Xinjiang is now being handled is going to make it an even more difficult problem to deal with, aside from the uh, other obvious reasons for concern about the Chinese government's approach in Xinjiang. Um, and this is true on several fronts. First of all, um, what's happening in Xinjiang right now uh, makes it less likely uh, that governments will cooperate on extraditions. Um, we've already seen that in a number of cases, um, not just in Europe, but for instance, the, the Malaysian government, which um, uh, unlike uh, its, its predecessor, um, uh, refused to hand over um, uh, uh, another group of um, detainees. It also makes it more likely that the Xinjiang cause will be taken up by militant groups that had simply deprioritized it um, traditionally. Um, China has, with a number of these militant groups, essentially been able to operate below a certain threshold. Um, it's not that there's kind of um, uh, there's active sympathy or, or, or support for China. It's simply that there's other causes that have been more important. Um, 2009 itself was a bit of a turning point in that regard. 2009 was the first point in which you got um, statements from Al-Qaeda um, about Xinjiang and about um, China of, of, of the sort that you saw back then. Um, I would expect this to get worse, um, particularly with the additional credibility that TIP has kind of acquired through its efforts in Syria. Um, and I think there will even be a cost to some of the important relationships with, with even the most reliable governments. Um, and the Pakistani case is very interesting um, in, in that respect. Um, the religious affairs minister, uh, Qadri, um, uh, claimed, or his press spokesperson claimed to have raised the Xinjiang issue in his meeting with the Chinese um, ambassador. This was subsequently walked back by both sides who claimed that this, this was never brought up. Um, but, but nonetheless, uh, the message was sent, I, I think, that even in the case of Pakistan, um, which would have been seen, this would have been seen as kind of a third rail issue. Um, uh, even in that case, there was, there was um, uh, some of these concerns were, were, were present. Um, and I'm certainly not going to pretend that this is, is happening on a, on a large-scale uh, basis. Um, in some instances, um, most notably uh, Turkey, you've seen even less uh, criticism than you, you saw back in 2009, um, for instance, from, from Erdogan. Um, but quietly, there, there, there are a lot of stirrings of, of disquiet. Um, and, and lastly, I mean, the Chinese government has, has got used to a presumption of disbelief in the wider international community about a lot of terrorism questions um, for, some, for some reason in the past. Um, it's now, I think, dealing with an atmosphere of more sympathy and concern um, for the, the, the Uyghur cause, which um, in lots of ways had not been there in, in this way um, in the past. You see this in, in the number of people that turn up to events on, on these things in, 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 in city, in DC, in, in wh wherever you look at the moment, um, and the degree to which this is being taken up um, politically. Now, none of this is even to go into the long-term implications in, in Xinjiang itself, um, where it's very hard to see how the current policies that are being pursued um, won't have some kind of a radicalizing um, impact. Uh, the, the most obvious question here is, what is the end game for the detentions? Um, is it even possible for China to change course um, if the international pressure uh, does continue to step up? Um, or is the very nature of the measures that are currently being pursued uh, making that at best uh, extremely difficult? Um, and I hope we'll get into these and some of the other um, uh, questions on what I think is kind of quite a wide canvas of issues in, in the discussion. Thank you. That's terrific. A lot of, lot of interesting data, interesting thoughts. And getting, getting down into the weeds, I think, is important to understand what's, what's really going on. 
Why prior to kind of the Olympics were there virtually no incidents? And why the explosion of incidents since? I mean, I'd, I'd put the explosion of incidents, um, that I would, I would frame as post-2009 rather than um, the Olympics. Right. In, in the run-up to the Olympics, you had, um, the, there was some sort of opportunistic targeting of, of the Olympics as a kind of occasion on which to uh, embarrass the government, um, uh, create certain sorts of pressures. That, that the, and, and this was the point at which you, you saw the kind of resuscitation of TIP, which were kind of, which claimed lineage from uh, from ETIM. This is the first point in which you got all these propaganda videos about attacks and and, and all of these things, which you just hadn't seen for a very long time. Um, but I think this has to be decoupled. The the the, the fact that you started um, uh, uh, seeing some of these more uh, international efforts to, to to cause problems, I think that has to be decoupled with what was happening in in Xinjiang um, itself. Um, I I mean I I think. Uh, I think most of this reflects the, um, and mo most of the incidents that were, were playing out, you do go back to the question of whether you're calling them in a kind of meaningful way, kind of terrorist attacks, or whether these were kind of low level um, acts, partly political, but partly specific grievances that people had that were playing out right. in an atmosphere of heightened tensions, heightened levels of detentions taking place, um, just a, a more repressive aftermath to um, the 2000, what happened in 2009, which was essentially, I mean, I would characterize as intercommunal violence. It was not, yeah. um, I, I wouldn't characterize uh, what played out. I mean, I, I wouldn't primarily characterize that as as, um, as having been conditioned by, say... How many died in, the, in, in 2009 riots? Was it 100 and... What was the number? 161? Maybe someone in the room has it. Yeah. And how many were, were Han? The preponderance... Preponderance. The preponderance um, were, were, were Han Chinese, and a lot of it were, were then kind of reprisal attacks uh -huh. um, afterwards. And, and I mean, most of the targeting of, of, uh, of, of the attacks that have, have taken place, I mean, some of them have been on government installations, police stations, um, uh, the military installations, um, but some of them have obviously just been attacks on crowds of civilians, um, uh, trucks being driven into things, attacks on marketplaces. Um, and I mean, clearly these have been directed at, at, at Han Chinese in, in Xinjiang. In total, what are we talking about in terms of numbers of incidents and numbers of people who have been killed? I don't think we have a sense of how, how big a problem this is. No, and it, 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 it remains difficult because um, there were points at which there was very active reporting on this taking place. I, I, I think you had you had good coverage in 2009, you had good coverage in a few of the years afterwards. There was then much uh, stricter controls um, placed both on international reporting on, on some of this um, and actually how much of this was, was fed out domestically. I think there was, there was a sense particularly I think after 2014 and that sequence of attacks um, that it also mattered for perceptions that um, a number of the attacks I think that were still taking place were, uh, were not being, were not going to be reported or filtered out quite as actively. Only when you had things that were taking place on the scale of the uh, the attack that took place on I think some mine workers where you again had 
double or even triple digit um, numbers of people killed in on on that occasion? Did you have something that reached a threshold where it kind of filtered out uh, more widely? But these kind of smaller scale attacks and um, and things, which I mean, they would they would be killing. Uh, I mean, you you look through the individual cases. Um, uh, single digits, double digits in in each instance, um, but it was very. It's been very hard. I, I haven't seen a fully authoritative attempt to piece together all of uh, the attacks that then played out from two thousand and nine. In total, twenty five hundred. It it could it could be it could be it could be that could be could be could be fewer. It's it's it's, it's hard. I mean, some of some of the I try I try to think of it. In other words, this policy that they've adopted in Xinjiang is like, oh my God, you know, this is counterproductive. And I try to think, what has driven them to adopt the policy that is so counterproductive, so dangerous, mm -hmm. so damaging to China's international image? What, what drove them to this? So, I mean, I think, I think you have a, a few different elements that, that play out here. For, first of all, I, I don't think it, it can just be quantified by um, the the, the, the scale right. and the numbers of the, the numbers of dead. I think it was a pervasive sense of insecurity um, in Xinjiang that, that then played out for, for a number of years after um, after this. I, the reason I think the Kunming case was, was was significant was precisely because this was then uh, the, there was a question about the capacity to secure major Chinese cities and, right. and things as well. There was a kind of Xinjiang toolkit, and then. Um, uh, the, the 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 capacity to launch attacks of that scale in in other cities as well then just raised the uh, levels of concern about how some of this uh, might play out um, and and again I think it was a kind of credibility uh, issue for for the for the government um, uh, writ large um, in terms of its capacity to 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 control um, some of these things so I certainly think that that played into um, the the scale of 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 the response that you then saw unfolding um it's quite hard to separate of course um uh the party chief um who was then installed in in xinjiang after his tenure in 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 tibet um uh the the approach and he was installed in what what year what month been 2015 um 16 16 um uh, and that's the period where you've seen these, the 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 much more considerable scaling up of um, uh, of uh, the detentions and 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 a set of practices which I mean have not been conducted in exactly the same way in in in, in Xinjiang, but um, there was a view that um, uh, that even the efforts that were being conducted um, in in the in the few years after the the. Uh, uh, the 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 Arumchi riots were still insufficiently hard. Um, I would also place it in the context, in 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 one sense of the kind of uh, re-education and other campaigns, the propaganda campaigns and things that have been conducted um, uh, elsewhere in 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 other contexts in in China. Of course, it's. Um, substantially different to be uh, detaining uh, people on 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 the scale that we've we've seen, um, but the practices that have been put in motion um, under Xi Jinping um, in in other environments, um, the kind of political campaigns, the anti-corruption campaign, all of these sorts of things um, on on of course an extremely large scale as well. Um, uh, the the I, I I think the the 
the approaches have to be seen in a in a similar context. It's, it's very hard to imagine um, an approach taken like this under um, the Hu Wen um, government, for instance. Mm -hmm. So, just like trying to, to de-escalate the whole thing, right? So, if you were to try to reach a point where all sides live in Zen, right, in some sort of equilibrium, right? Um, is this is this like a, a, a a separatism story? Is this a cultural issue? Is this uh, is this a freedom of religion that is is almost like uh, 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 was exacerbated during kind of like you know the communist era and is now mutating into something new? What do you if I if you were to solve the problem, right? Uh, uh, what do you think would be the solution? problem where all parties will be happy? I think there's an ideal uh, set of solutions to the problems and then there's the what are the solutions within a set of much more limited parameters that we have to, to deal with in the way the Chinese state is run. So I, I think there's I, I, I think answering the first version of, of, of the of, of the issue is is maybe not helpful. The the, the, the question uh, at this stage, I think is even within the parameters that um, are that the Chinese government has set for the way it conducts some of these policies. Even within this, uh, what is being pursued looks as if it's egregiously counterproductive and going vastly beyond um, the scale of the sorts of things that 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 could uh, that they've been doing elsewhere and that could possibly be expected to um, succeed. I mean, going back to the, the beginning of, of of your question, Nick. I mean, some of these elements have become fused. Um, the uh, ethnic identity questions, religious identity um, questions, how this fuses with, um, in the past, economic opportunities, inter-ethnic um, issues. I mean, a number of these things have, have, have not been as, as kind of cleanly um, separated out or, um, uh, or, or, or something where you can say it is essentially, um, I mean, there was a period of time in which the approach, of course, that was taken was gradually with more epi economic opportunities being afforded, um, uh, this will sort of recondition um, attitudes over time. It will be uh, it will be slow. There may be stops and starts, but over time, uh, it, the, the 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 problems that are being faced will be um, gradually eroded by economic prosperity. And going back to your earlier question, why was the period um, from the late 90s to the late 2000s somewhat more um, somewhat more peaceful? Um, certainly in the kind of interviews that I um, uh, conducted in Xinjiang, I, I think the economic story did have some traction. The, 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 I mean, you saw, I mean, Xinjiang itself, of course, was growing at about 10%. It was one of the fastest growing Chinese um, uh, uh, provinces, again, not to get into the definition for it's province or not. Um, uh, it was one of the fastest growing areas in, 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 in China. Uh, Although there were kind of questions about um, uh, equality of access to, 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 to jobs, and although there were a lot of the long-standing grievances that go you know, back as long as you could um, uh, uh, look at the issue, um, uh, the, the, there was, I think, more of a sense of acquiescence um, than had been the case um, uh, in the previous decade. That was really exploded, um, I, I, I think, by, by, by what played out particularly um, in 2009 in the aftermath. You saw a much heavier um, hand um, of, of the Chinese state. Again, you saw more inter-ethnic um, tensions playing out. Um, the religious dimension has been uh, 
has been a fairly central element. There is an active attempt, of course, to sort of stamp out religious practices. Um, this is fused with, um, of course, other identity um, questions. I, all of these things have become quite inter intertwined. Um, I mean, the question at this stage is, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that the, I mean, this is part, part of the approach that is being pursued is that there is a, an attempt almost to solve the problem where the problem that is, is, is being seen um, to, 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 the, the, that needs to be solved is the capacity for some of these attacks to, to take place. If that's the problem that you're, you're trying to solve, you come up with a different uh, version of the, of the solution. Um, because it has, in some ways, solved elements of that problem. The security situation now, when you detain large numbers of people and you have this surveillance system uh, in, in Xinjiang of the sort that's there, has meant that you do not have the sort of attacks um, that were taking place several years ago. Um, so if that, if that is the problem that you're trying to, to solve in the short term, uh, this does look as if it is mitigating it. Um, in the medium to long term, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to see that it's, um, it, it's not exacerbating it. Um, I, I could go on at greater length, but I, 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 I well, What lessons answer. are here for, for Tibet policy? I mean, I think the difference in the case of, it, it, it's hard to extricate the, the Xinjiang case from the, um, from the question of Islam and, um, and, and that dimension of, of, of the question as well, um, uh, in terms of also the differences um, between how the issues are being treated. Um, I think there's, um, there's, there's more comfort and familiarity with um, Tibetan Buddhism, of course, um, and has has traditionally been on 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 uh, in 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 Beijing, and how one manages all the dimensions of 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 that as as a religious question um, as well. The discomfort with uh, questions of Islam, by contrast, is quite acute and is dealt with. Uh, and, and I think the approach that's being taken uh, in Xinjiang is is particularly. Uh, colored by this and I, I, I think if you if you look at the the, the approach and the practices um, uh, that that is one of the the, uh, the the big differences that's feeding um, feeding into it I mean of course you haven't seen um, uh, I mean again you, you had what played out in 2008 in in, yes, in, in, in Tibet yeah. um, and of course if you go and visit uh, if you went to visit Lhasa in the aftermath and then you went to visit Kashgar you saw um, kind of quite pointed similarities in terms of what they what, what those cities looked like then versus what those cities looked like if you visited it if you visited them uh, in in the late 90s so I certainly think there are and and I mean of course the before you had the AI facial recognition detention mass detentions and things you had kind of a garrisoning of, 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 of certain places the patrols that would take place the deployments of um, uh, of security personnel on the scale that you saw. I mean, I didn't even go into the, the, the considerable escalation in the, in the numbers of security personnel that have been hired and deployed in, in some of these places. That was the, the, the kind of playbook that you saw that where some of those lessons from Tibet were then applied uh, in the Xinjiang case um, in, the, in kind of 2009 and afterwards. But the sense was that um, that they weren't that in in the case of Tibet, you you didn't have comparable incidents again. Uh, in in Xinjiang, this was I think considered to be uh, insufficient to to manage the problem, and 
then we've moved into this uh, new uh, zone, which I would, which I wouldn't expect even, uh, which I wouldn't expect would be replicated in Tibet. Okay, some questions in the back. Yeah, Rosie. Yeah. Um, hi, um, I work at the National Committee, but I guess you just mentioned that the, um, you know, the security state apparatus is advanced enough in Xinjiang that through you know surveillance, AI, facial recognition, garrisons of military on the street, that there is significant, you know, there's measures in place to prevent this kind of violent actions from happening. So then. I think the question is really why create these camps, right? Not only the ethical why, but the practical why of like, doesn't this seem like the blueprint to radicalize people is to put them all together, isolated into these camps where they can, you know, where resentment is building and they can all, you know, be in contact with each other. I mean, it just, why, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's, it's very hard to, to answer this question, I mean, so the the uh, so I mean, when I when I spend my time on on this, I spend my time in two kind of parallel universes almost. There's the there's the zone of how this how the terrorism questions are treated by kind of a sort of party apparatus set up, um, and then there's how counterterrorism issues are treated by some of the actual counterterrorism specialists in China. Um, I find when I have uh, all, all my long-standing friends working on, on, on this issue who work on these questions as counterterrorism questions would, with some exceptions perhaps, but overwhelmingly um, uh, are kind of in line with what you would consider to be a mainstream international view on how one, uh, and how one addresses these issues. Um, I, I still see there being a, a disjunction between that um, and uh, certain uh, practices and, and views within the party on how one navigates these things. And this is why I don't think it can be separated from the, I mean, is it a good idea to um, uh, uh, install communist party cells in every business? Is it a good idea to, um, uh, I mean, if, if you, for, 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 for private enterprise in China, is it a good idea to have everyone go through these um, uh, peculiar um, uh, retraining um, campaigns across the country that most of the people who are involved in them consider to be um, ridiculous and counterproductive. I mean, you, you have a number of these things where the, 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 the rationale for it and, and, and the views that are coming, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure, get to a real why on, on this. I mean, there, there is a version of, of what people uh, think they're doing, and in, in this case, kind of ideological indoctrination being conducted in, in the camps and, and, and this view that you can kind of um, uh, ideologically reprogram people through these processes and, and, and things that seems um, highly disconnected from, from what one would consider to be the obvious ramifications of the practice and what um, counter-terrorism specialists in China would, I, I think, largely believe in terms of the obvious ramifications of this practice. Yeah. yeah. I pretend to be an expert on, on Chinese uh, national security. I have problems here at home, being in the 43rd prison being built in Chinatown. But anyway, um, I just want to go to the third rung, I mean, the, the rung, the other um, pole of uh, Chinese strategy, and it's, I guess, the Belt and Road Initiative, how yeah. it may impact the overall strategy in the end game. 
and your opinions on it, because obviously it's going to affect Central Asia, which is mostly Muslim, right? <coughs> Secular, but Muslim. And, and I'm sure Turkey and, well, Turkey and Iran are part of that process, uh, stating. So how does that, in your opinion, affect this overall strategy as far as a peaceful development as opposed to our own government strategy of war? And whether that this is part of the end game, that's meant economic development is part of the overall strategy. And that you, you're going to have Afghanistan and Pakistan and Turkey. Turkey, of course, has been providing assistance over the years. But that, the fact that they want this development and they want to mess things up. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a number of different Belt and Road related things that, that, that spin off from it. Um, first of all, in Xinjiang itself, of course, what's playing out has impacted economic activity in in um, uh, the, um, in problematic ways. If, if Xinjiang is supposed to be a kind of nodal connection point for um, uh, the, um, the continental dimensions of, of the Belt and Road, um, uh, it's not uh, it's not functioning very effectively. Is that when you when the primary objective in, in Xinjiang right now? I mean, when you're locking up this number of people, it affects economic activity as well. Um, and some of the studies that have been conducted just on that mean that I mean, Xinjiang um, should be the kind of the, the the nodal link for the Central Asian Republic. The Chinese movie says it's a, it's a retraining. You, you see the movie? Uh, it's a fifteen uh, yes. minute movie, and yeah. and it's retraining, and they showed. People working in the in these re-education camps. Million. So there's there's the there's the number that is the up to a million number. Um, uh, there are, there have been estimates that are hundreds of thousands. Um, there have been lower estimates. There have been estimates that uh, there have been uh, even this week. I think some. Uh, some of the additional analysis on the size of the camp. I mean, some of these have been based on the size of the camps and how many people are likely to have been fitted into various facilities. And so those numbers vary quite a lot. Then clearly not. And and it's it's based a lot of it's based on the documentation relating to the camps, aerial photography, um, analysis of the equipment that has been bought, contracts where the the information is available, this sort of stuff. So there there's still estimates these these numbers that are coming in. But that's been the the kind of scale between which. The, the thing has, has, has oscillated. Um, so, I mean, back, back to the question. I mean, there's the, the Xinjiang immediate dimension, which also has some immediate spillover because you've had Kazakhs detained, of course, in a particularly notable case, putting pressure on the Kazakh uh, government. Um, you've had um, wives of, uh, I mean, for instance, there, there were Pakistanis um, whose wives had been kind of swept up um, in, in this and their children taken away. Um, so you've had immediate cross-border ramifications of, of, of this that have been, again, points of tension and sensitivity with, with neighboring governments. Um, so there's, there's the kind of, there's some of the immediate Xinjiang-related questions. Um, the terrorism questions, of course, that relate to Belt and Road go well beyond the Xinjiang um, question. It, it, as much of this comes to questions that are, uh, I mean, on the one hand, how far do some of the economic measures that are being undertaken um, help to um, fulfill some kind of a stabilizing, counter-radicalizing role, which I, I do think in a number of cases is the intention. Um, the kind of, from the A to B piece is sometimes a bit more nebulous. How is it that investment X in Baluchistan is going to help stabilize Baluchistan? In some cases, in the near term, it may well actually prompt more attacks, more radicalization. It's not the, 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 the linkage in this case is, yes, over a long enough time arc, 
greater prosperity, greater economic opportunity um, should in principle um, uh, change the um, uh, ch change this equation, but in the near to medium term, it, it's not necessarily clear that it has that impact. And of course, there are, there's more targeting of Chinese facilities, Chinese workers um, in a number of these other um, uh, countries as well. And I mean, my my additional con concern for for Chinese workers in these places is that they will become the uh, the, the Xinjiang issue becomes greater point of sensitivity. Um, uh, that there are more groups that that that, that choose to hit Chinese targets than would traditionally have been uh, the case as a result of what's playing out there, as some of these issues achieve more salience than they did among some of the militant groups that typically have other primary targets. Um, uh, you, there are groups that have made a point of targeting China as much as a way of targeting their own governments or for local related, um, uh, for, for, for local reasons. Um, again, the Xinjiang issue has been has been marginal for for a lot of these groups. So you don't tend to get the kind of sophisticated attacks. Um, I mean, you, you can go through the instances in, in, in various locations where where some of these attacks have taken place, but you know, it's it, it's not tended to be. China hasn't been the same kind of target, and that's that balance is is is, is shifting and and does pose a very different set of security questions along the Belt and Road, regardless of 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 the kind of potentially beneficial, but you know debatable um, implications of, of what the Belt and Road itself might actually do in this regard. Oh, wow. So, Monica, yes. Go ahead. Hi, Go my name is Coco. I'm a graduate student at Columbia. And uh, you sort of mentioned this, the uh, potential economic benefits of the Belt and Road project. But can you elaborate on China's economic policy and Xinjiang right now? Like, is the government trying to actively integrate the Uyghur population into the Chinese economy? Besides, um, like ramping up, well, besides building all those detention camps. I mean, I think so. Xinjiang, of course, had been relatively underdeveloped, had somewhat lower growth rates, um, uh, has in the last decade been one of the had ha, has been one of the faster growing um, uh, uh, provinces already, um, and. Um, the the issue, of course, has been uh, partly the structure of the economy in, in Xinjiang, with the um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, with the Bingtuan, um, and partly um, the um, uh, the fact that there have also been um, a lot of Han Chinese uh, brought into uh, the the brought into Xinjiang um, as well. Um, right now, it's very hard to say that the economic agenda. Uh, I mean, this, the scale of what's going on being what it is, it just feels like the economic agenda is deprioritized. And it, on any of the kind of marginal judgment calls one way or the other, the priority right now appears to be classic security measures trump economics um, in, in Xinjiang. This wasn't true even, you know, three years ago. I mean, when the Belt and Road and things like that were being, were being launched, I, I think there was um, uh, a more serious attempt to to, to treat Xinjiang in um, uh, as to, to treat the the venture as kind of Xinjiang as part of the stabilization effort and and part of um, uh, and, and economic regeneration and and kind of further takeoff of 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 Xinjiang as, as as a central part of the agenda. Now it feels like um, the there's a real willingness to accept kind of costs um, on 
bilateral economic linkages and, 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 and things, um, if that's helpful for security purposes. You, and you see this in terms of you know, also like visas for people going back and forth. It, it's all moving in a, in a direction that, that I would say deprioritizes um, as some of these. I mean, you can go through and, and list all the economic activities that are taking place in, in, in Chiang. It's not, it's not that these things have, um, aren't happening as, as well, but just in terms of the, the balance of priorities, I think it's moved. Right here. I'm Laurel. Uh, I'm a graduate from Columbia, and I'm also somebody hit um, this. I'm also a, a Xinjiang resident. I'm from Florida, and I have uh, my family is like compulsory have a weaker uh, relative. Like, yeah. 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 So, uh, so it's uh, it's <coughs> gonna be like a really personal question. Uh, I have two questions. Like, um, first of all, how do you say like the uh, possibility of um, pressure from international community uh, in terms of the um, situation like uh, the China first uh, deny and then here like officially introduce the, the reaction camp in the law. How do you see that? And uh, <coughs> and uh, and aware like under like um, substantial like concrete evidence of like detention at the reaction camp like how many. People actually there there are kind of videos or pictures, we don't have that. Like how how do you acquire this kind of evidence like to against the, the, the like detention and the registration camp? That's the first question. And next one is like actually um, Chinese government is trying to um, like define like Xinjiang model the mass uh, surveillance and put it like uh, into giant China, like to other provinces. How do you see that? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um, so first of all, on the international pressure um, front, um, and it, it might be, it, would you be willing to explain what the kind of relative thing is to people? <laughs> the, the, the Uyghur relative thing for people oh, who don't know. A Uyghur relative is like, uh, because my, f um, uh, it's like, a, uh, I don't know how to say it, just like, um, and your family will be like linked to another Uyghur family, and you have to like uh, like per month or um, or two weeks you have to visit that family and uh, like to get some communication, some interaction, um, probably like to help them financially or just culturally, like to build us like two family get together. And, uh, really closely, like to develop some kind of really in really like um, happy, I don't know, like <laughs> happy relationship between Han and the Uyghur to like keep like stability. And, and every Han Chinese family in um, Xinjiang has one? Not every. Um, uh, if you work for the government or this kind of like uh, if you have like the if you are from city like city residents and you will be linked to like um, people from village and there's also like uh, um, Uyghur they are working for government and they are city like resident and they are linked to Han like living in villages. Thank you. And sorry for putting you on the spot, but I, I think it's. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a very big article that many in the room may have seen in China File today um, on, on, on this subject by an anthropologist who's been spending time um, on, on, on this, both interviewing Han friends who, who are involved in this process and uh, uh, Uyghurs on the other side, and then kind of counterposing the accounts. Um, uh, uh, 
Sorry, to, but to, to, to answer your question on the, on, on the international pressure, I, the point of interest is how, one of the big points of interest is how this plays out in the Islamic world. Um, and then there is a question of how this is playing out um, kind of in the West or here and, and things. Um, here, um, I, I think it's also a little bit difficult to separate it from the broader context of what's going on in the US-China relationship. Um, clearly, it wouldn't have been picked up with the same level of force by various actors if the US-China relationship were not in the state that it's in. There's clearly a lot of seizing on this issue as well by people who are seizing on all sorts of different issues. Um, but there is also uh, a genuine level of concern to an unusual degree. Um, and I think almost on the Chinese side might have been considered surprising I think there's sometimes been an expectation that um, for certain perhaps obvious reasons um, the the Uyghur questions will be kind of deprioritized um, uh, here as well. I, I don't think that's the case in, in this instance. There are discussions about the application of the Global Magnitsky Act, for instance, um, uh, that, are, that, that are in play. Um, you have, I mean, I think it was when uh, w when this was raised very openly and actively at the UN, I, I think this was one of the things that then led to the response that you then saw to um, having moved from saying that the thing wasn't happening to now portray it in the light that we're seeing in the video that was 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 mentioned and um, and some of these other efforts. Um, I, the the question to me though is is partly how far this is picked up by uh, uh, governments from Islamic countries and how far whether this plays out in public or in private, whether there are then warnings given about the ramifications. It's, it's played out to a very modest degree uh, in public. You've seen uh, Malaysia, and of course, you've seen the dynamics between the new Malaysian government and, 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 and China on, on some of this. You, you've seen what Anwar Ibrahim said. You've, you've, you've seen some of these things. The, um, the Pakistani case, though, was a, was a rare case. I mean, when you went back to 2009, uh, in the OIC, oh. Um, uh, you had real pressure at that point, and you had visits organized. In the what? Uh, uh, the Organization of Islamic Conference. Um, uh, a, well, I don't get into it, but, but um, you, you had, you, China basically had to get kind of friendly governments, um, notably Pakistan, to sort of run interference on the, the, the scale of disquiet that there was over what was playing out. And of course, this was playing out in a very live way, in Urumqi, in the way that it was. And this is playing out over this kind of uh, slower motion. Um, but um, the, I, I, I think how this is, the, the, the pressure question, I think, and it also goes back to the Belt and Road question and, and things like that, I think will be more telling if it comes um, from some of these other sources than when it's seen as being kind of wrapped up in some of the other dimensions of, of what's playing out in in what you know is obviously happening in the U.S.-China relationship uh, yeah. right now. Um, so that I mean that's what I. But the direction, <coughs> the trajectory on this is, is is headed in a is is kind of scaling up, and it's and and the level of reporting that you're you're seeing I think is indicative of of that. I think it's going to be a big story for for, for some time to come, and that will that will play into political responses. Um, uh, the mass. Sorry. Do you think is there any possibility to bring up assumption because it was previously mentioned? Like yeah. I think there is a possibility. Um, I, I I don't see the disc. I mean, I see the discussions in Washington about this at least. Um, uh, and so, 
which would in this instance be, um, and I mean, there's a spectrum of these things. There's targeted sanctions directed at individuals who are involved in, in some of these programs. Um, there's pressures that are then put on uh, companies that are involved in things like surveillance equipment or um, uh, provision of equipment to military facilities, all of these sorts of things, um, including some instances um, if there are US companies that are linked to um, uh, to to any of these actors on the Chinese side on you know, things like facial recognition um, and, and things like this so I, th th these discussions I think are are, are quite live um, uh, at the moment and and that would obviously um, again there's a permissive environment for this as well at the moment um, uh, so uh, I don't see it as much elsewhere, the kind of sanctions discussion. I, I haven't seen it in, I mean, I follow the European debates on this stuff very closely as well. I haven't seen that there yet, but um, uh, but, but yes, cer certainly on the US side. Um, and, and, and on your last question, which was about the application of some of these, I mean, it does look like Xinjiang functions as a kind of test case on, on, on some of this. this. is a sort of, I mean, there is a real question about whether this is the advance guard of uh, a, a whole series of measures. I mean, on the surveillance side, I'm not talking about the detentions case, but 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 I mean, China has the most advanced facial recognition software in the world. Um, uh, the, these are um, your. It's appealing to a lot of government. I mean, it's it, it's certainly of interest, as far as I'm aware. To I mean, is already playing out in other parts of, of China in a different way. I mean, it's it, 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 it's not playing out on the, on the same sort of scale as in Xinjiang, but internationally as well. I mean, this, there's, there are other governments that would find the kind of super high-grade facial recognition um, uh, tied to criminal databases or tied to whatever databases of information that aren't just criminal databases to be quite useful. Um, uh, this is, I mean, you have uh, Zimbabwe is, 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 is one of the kind of interesting external um, cases. Um, you look at some of these kind of whatever they are, safe city initiatives and things and the Digital Silk Road uh, efforts. I mean, and there is an interest, of course, in, in for, for the Chinese companies to have access to the data for kind of completely for, for other reasons as well. So the, the interest in rolling this out internationally is, is, is quite clear. Um, and the interest on the part of governments to have access to the, this kind of surveillance and, and not just uh, non-democratic governments, for democratic governments as well in various places. This is kind of appealing to, to have. So I, would, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see um, uh, this as kind of a harbinger of, of what might play out, not just elsewhere in, in, in China, but, um, but, 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 but internationally as well. And again, not that all the repressive practices ha that have to come along with that, but, but the, uh, the surveillance um, capacities, um, I think, are a distinct issue. Let's see. Well, we've got to give some other break here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if you could comment on there was a news article this morning um, about there was a China, uh, sorry a Japanese journalist was released uh, by Al Nusra to Turkish authorities, and the Japanese government thanked Qatar for the release, which I guess means a bunch of money went that way. And the journalist said he was held by um, well, as SCMP reported as the Chinese Islamic Movement um, for two years. So, one of you comment on that, and by Chinese Islamic Movement, do they mean? Turkish Islamic movement, but SCMP might be constrained. Uh, do you know anything about that, or how it might affect the relationship with either Qatar or with Japan or larger, larger scheme? It's uh, very interesting. I don't know the case uh, well enough. I didn't see the story this morning, um, so I can speculate. Um, I mean, the the largest groups operating in in, in 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 Syria were TIP. There aren't. I mean, there are there are kind of degrees of splintering and and things, but I mean, TIP has functioned as a relatively cohesive. 
um, group. They have their own kind of, um, uh, I mean, your families and I mean, fairly sizable setup, um, numbers in the thousands. Um, uh, so. Um, if you were to look at a Chinese entity operating in Syria that w could potentially have held someone, that would be, um, I haven't, the, the, the name China Islamic, I, I, haven't, I, I haven't heard of that as a kind of distinct entity from TIP. Um, of course, in the aftermath of the, um, uh, of, of the, uh, of, of the attacks on Raqqa and, and, and I mean, what played out with the kind of splintering of, of, of IS. There were a number of Chinese um, fighters there as well. Um, there could be kind of remnant entities, but they didn't function so much as kind of a coherent group. They were more kind of in the mass of, of, of personnel, whereas TIP were, were functioning and, and have been functioning much more kind of coherently and, um, and, 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 and separately. So they, they would be the obvious case, but I, I'd, I'd really have to, uh, to, uh, to, to look into the, the specifics to answer the other questions. Here we have, let's see, go ahead in front of John and then John and then back there. But real quick, in like 20 second bites and then we'll have one minute for answers. Uh, one could make the argument that uh, these de-radicalization camps actually do work longer term if you lock up lots of people and don't release them. Do you, do you see any evidence of these being used as sort of a longer term incarceration facility and just getting around the legal system? That's what there is in the legal system. Uh, a, a second question, uh, you referred to some other countries being reluctant to extradite uh, awaiting uh, back to China. Um, beside, I think you're referring to Malaysia. I guess that's post-Mahathir returning yeah. to power. Yeah, is any other instances of that sort of thing? John. Real My quick. question is just to pick up your, your reference to other population centers of Chinese Muslims, so Hui and perhaps other parts of the country where there are significant numbers of Muslims, whether there's been any change in behavior, whether the, the Hui are trying to ensure that this doesn't happen to them and so that they're, they are proactively uh, engaging government or doing anything different or, or the African Muslims and, and Chinese Muslims down in, in in the southeast in Guangzhou, et cetera. Um, Keep it one second. Sort of round it down. Uh, evidence is there at all that uh, that the China, that the parties like utilizing its its um, con control of social media to stoke Han nationalist um, attitudes to kind of bolster. It's similar to how how it's done um, on a on a diplomatic scale with. Japan and uh, Philippines and, and Vietnam. Is there any evidence that they're using specifically uh, like digital information campaigns to kind of um, get more support from the okay. the Han that are there? Going to answer all those in one minute. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> uh, I'll I'll do it in reverse order then. Um, on the last count, I think that after two thousand, there were even points in which some of it had to be dampened down on the. Um, on, on, on some of the, the, the Han Uyghur um, issues. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not sure there's been a kind of stoking inter on the kind of <coughs> inter-ethnic side. I mean, in terms of 
broader, um, you know, what the Chinese government is doing here is benign kind of stuff, then, then, then sure, but um, uh, not in terms of kind of actively stoking antipathy. That, the, the problem there was that that was there and actually had to be contained, if anything, was the, was, was the problem. Um, on the, um, the, the keeping people being locked up, sorry to hop around, um, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the final question I kind of posed in the presentation. I mean, what is the end game on this? Yes, I mean, there is a version in which you just lock up and keep detained um, uh, uh, all of these people um, virtually indefinitely. Um, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I think the pressure on this is growing um, and, and then it becomes a trade-off on, on, on some of this. I, I mean, I really don't think this issue is, 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 is going away or that it will just be treated as a kind of normal practice that you detain uh, this number of people from this ethnic group on this scale. Um, so, and, uh, but if you lock a lot of people up in presence together, even with all of the monitoring, that we know what the ramifications of that typically are. So um, at some point there has to be, the, the, there's, the, there's a judgment call on, on what hit you decide you're willing to, to take. Um, uh, and of course there are worse things that could, could, could be done uh, as well. Um, uh, on the way question, um, so that's, that's I think, uh, I mean, you, you, your question approached it from, from the other side of kind of how are reassurances being provided. I mean, they really shouldn't have had to be reassurances provided. I mean, I'm not in, what, in, in the sense that it's not, the, the ha there haven't been issues of the sort that you would, um, that you would characterize um, typically as, you know, separatism, religious extremism, blah, blah, blah. Um, you have, the, the thing about um, the, the Kunming case was, um, you had the, the one issue that was there was you had because you had this Xinjiang centric approach it then meant that any Islamic practices in the rest of China were not subject to the same levels of scrutiny and were highly differentiated approaches so if you were a Saudi um, preacher you you wouldn't be operating in in, in Xinjiang you might be operating in Yunnan um, and I think there's been more of a push not just at the way but across the country to look a little bit differently at kind of where is money coming from? Um, I mean, the Yunnanese government again, not to pick on on them, but had accepted a lot of money coming in from um, from, from certain sources that are now being looked at differently and were looked at differently um, in the aftermath. The problem is, it is I think translating in terms of higher levels of at least monitoring and control um, where the way are becoming kind of more subject for suspicion. And I think we've seen a number of the stories about, about that um, across the country in, in, in the last couple of years. And, and, and the concern is that some of that, um, and of course, is not fused with some of the other issues that, 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 that are there um, in, in the Xinjiang case, but um, it becomes bound up in something that, become, that, that is a Islam problem um, in terms of how that's treated writ large, and, and there is kind of an attitudinal issue there that you that, that you see in, in, in parts of the government. Um, and I struggle to see how the way question gets completely kept out of that over time, and then that translates into something that is uh, even more um, difficult, I think, to, to navigate. We have run five minutes over, but I see that not one person has gotten up to leave, which is a testimony to how interesting and kind of informative this presentation has been. Really, it's been terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.